Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Today, we have an interview with Jin Zhu Hung, a director of data science at The Home Depot. She discusses her current role as a data scientist, the work it entails, and some initiatives she's been a part of. She'll also give advice for others looking to get into the data science field. Hi, I'm Stephanie Rideout, Leadership Fellow at Women Who Code for the Python track. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Jen Huang. She is Director of Data Science at The Home Depot. Jen has 15 plus years of experience applying data science to retail applications. She is a keen observer of how AI impacts our daily lives. Thank you for joining me today, Jen. Thank you, Stephanie. Wonderful. So I'm very excited. So to start us off, would you like to introduce yourself and share a little bit about your career history? Sure. So first of all, thank you for the opportunity. Always respected women of code. Um, such so important to have a community, especially at this uh, difficult time when most of us are working from home and maybe have that sense of disconnected. So really great to have a community where we talk to each other and just share share you know life stories and tips. So um, real quick about myself, I actually sort of started in the humanity area. So uh, doing my PhD in sociology at University of Minnesota. Sociology turns out to be very um, quantitative. So uh, I decided to pursue a statistical career at the same time. So I also finished my master's degree in biostats. Um, and both discipline um, helped me to recognize sort of a lifelong passion, which is to use experimentation to discover truth. So, uh, you know, uh, biostats use a lot of clinical trial to decide if a certain medication is good for our patients. So that passion for experimentation has carried me throughout my career. Uh, I started at Target where I did a lot of uh, machine learning stuff, but also try to build their experimentation exp uh, platform. And when I come to Home Depot, that's what I started by doing, uh, continuing into using machine learning to drive experimentation as well. Oh, that's really, that's really fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. So could you tell us about working at the Home Depot and the work that you do there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, actually very fortunate, I feel like, very blessed to be at Home Depot at the time when I joined about 10 years ago. Uh, at that time, we actually do not have a data science practice at scale at all, if any. I remember our first data science team picture has about five people. 
um, now we have over 100 people uh, under data science. So the growth has been tremendous. Um, and the area we primarily focus on is to bring machine learning right, to see how we can best help our customers. Uh, a couple of our key program include to help customer find product in a faster and easier way. Um, I'm not a huge DIYer myself, so I always need help when I don't know what's the right tool to use, right? And data science use this type, their uh, machine learning skills to say, okay, is this the right drill, for example, for the project you're doing? Uh, so search product recommendation are uh, one of our key areas. And then we also do a lot of data science across to help you, for example, to get product to you faster in our supply chain or to help you to do assortment better so you know the right product is waiting for you in our merchandising assortment planning. Uh, so data science, I'm really happy to see is widely used across Home Depot to drive our service to our customers. Wow, the Home Depot sounds like an amazing place to work and it sounds like <laughs> you're doing a lot of amazing work there. Um, what can you tell us about the company culture and the Home Depot's commitment to diversity? Yeah, absolutely. It's such an important question, I think, for anybody considering, because um, uh, culture is what keeps me here, by and large, and the work right itself. So um, I am really happy to see a lot of initiatives at Home Depot that's very um, uh, focused on promoting diversity. So we have, for example, uh, monthly talks around diversity. We invite um, speakers from outside to talk about it. We have uh, themed talks either uh, a while ago, for example, very near and dear to my heart. We have, uh, there's some uh, violence against uh, Asian, uh, especially women in Atlanta area. And when that happened, we hosted multiple talks about, uh, you know, respect at workplace um, and just how do we, uh, communicate difficult questions, even including how do you tell your children stories like this so they are prepared. So I feel very supportive from those conversation point of view, but more importantly, I think it's not just what you say, but also what you do. So what I was particularly encouraged in terms of diversity, uh, one being, you know, uh, coming from China myself, it's very important that I feel like there is no glass ceiling for me being a woman and being, uh, you know, not white. Um, and also, it, like take hiring practice, for example, this is where you really see, right? Are you hiring in a very diverse way? And I'm super happy that uh, at Home Depot, across the board, especially in data science. So for, for example, for our teams, we have team member uh, from Egypt, we have team member from Jordan. Um, in fact, uh, you know, the <clears throat> guy from <clears throat> Jordan, excuse me, is our senior director for data science. And we also have lots of people from Europe. We have people from Africa. So more than 10 plus countries uh, representing a really rich, diverse cultural background. Um, and so the practice in hiring and because of what people bring with them once they join the team, I think very organically and naturally promote a sense of 
we must learn to respect and work with each other, respect the difference, understand the difference, and then make the best out of it. So it's really a matter of figuring out how one to one plus, uh, one plus one is bigger than two in this case. And I think when you have a very diverse team, a lot of times that will happen very organically. And that's what I like about it. Oh, that was very insightful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Sure. So um, let's kind of turn over um, to data science topic. So what are some advances in the field of data science you are passionate about? Wow, my favorite topic. <laughs> so there are an amazing amount of data science advancement. Um, just uh, I wanted to focus on maybe just two areas for, for the short talk today. So the first one I'm super excited about is in the field of reinforcement learning. Um, most people, when they think of reinforcement learning, um, first, some people may just ask, what is it? <laughs> because it's so new. But a lot of people know about it, understood it as being uh, the application in the robotics uh, field. So for example, how does your uh, mop learn to figure out where the dirt is and not to run over your cat, right? So that's reinforcement learning ap applied in robotics. So the question is, how is reinforcement learning applied to a retail setting? Um, and that's actually one question we are actively trying to figure out together with many in the community. Um, so at Home Depot, we are excited to to try out two things. Earlier, I mentioned my passion is experimentation. So naturally, that's the first uh, foray into this I tried. Um, so a family of uh, algorithm called Motarm Bandit or Contextual Bandit is where we uh, use reinforcement learning technique. Uh, so similar to sort of a gaming strategy, right? When you go play in a casino, you wanted to maximize your return. So when you have different machines to try, you uh, may just randomly try them out, find a winner, and then bet more on the winner. But at the same time, you keep on trying out the machine in case there's an opportunity return or cost on the other machine. So same thing at Home Depot, uh, one concrete example. We have lots of different, as data science, we all know we have lots of different versions of um, algorithms. So sometimes, for example, you take forever to do the right parameter or hyperparameter tuning. So you have many versions of algorithm. Wouldn't it be great if there is a bot that can select the optimal algorithm for you? And even better would be the contextual sense where the bot can identify customers' attributes and basically figure out because of these attributes, this customer welcome this experience better. So what we did is, again, the same game theory strategy of continuous experimentation, but when we find a winner, we will let more customer enjoying that winning experience. So again, uh, contextual volunteer and bandit, uh, tremendous. But I think there's a lot of unknowns too, because we're working on, for example, academic uh, paper to see what new algorithm we can develop in addition to the existing ones. Uh, and we encountered a lot of unsolved problems. So very excited about that. Um, so the other super exciting area of data science application in uh, retail is in the visual AI field. Um, so one example, and this product actually I love and helped me a lot, is to how to use um, a visual cue to 
buy the right furniture in your home. I'm not so good at home decor. So what I do, like many of us, right, is to go look for inspiration outside. Like you see a picture on house. Or if you go to Home Depot, actually, there are lots of beautiful rooms in picture. So what happens when you see a room that looks like your dream home? So what we do is to use what we call complete the room algorithm. There are different parts of this algorithm on the website. And if you're interested, uh, definitely take a look for yourself. So when you have a room scene, what we do right from an algorithm point of view is we first apply an object detection. So out of the room scene, I can detect, for example, here's a beautiful sofa, here's a chair, here's a side table. So the objects were detected. And then we will apply a visually similar calculation to figure out based on the style of this couch or the color or whatever other salient attributes of this product, uh, what are the uh, similar products that Home Depot has in their inventory. So in case you know this product is not exactly what you needed or you want a, for example, slightly different price point, we have similar, uh, visually similar product you could choose from. So that's the second one, visual similarity. The third algorithm we apply on this is to make sure you have a complete set of room. So based on not just similarity, but uh, based on our uh, stylist recommendation, uh, what is good coordinating item? For example, if you have a blue couch, what is the right color or shape or style for a side table or for a lamp on that side table? So then this is a coordinating algorithm. It's pretty sophisticated. We have to have our stylist to train the algorithm with the right label first. So lots of work goes into it and we're happy with the final product because we help customers to put together a very beautiful room with the right style that's personalized to them. Um, hopefully that example uh, shows how Visual AI is helping Home Depot's customers to, to buy stuff for their house. Uh, hopefully that gives you a view of the cool uh, projects we're using um, machine learning at Home Depot. Yeah, that is so amazing. There's so many amazing uh, advances right now in the fields of data science and AI. So thank you so much for sharing the ones that you were um, most passionate about. I'm sure there, there are many more. <laughs> so um, what are some ways that AI impacts our daily lives and how can data scientists practice social responsibility? Yeah. This is probably one of the most important questions. I think it's all our responsibility actually to think about it. And I certainly do not remotely claim I have the answer or right answer for it. But uh, growing up a sociologist, it's, it's natural to take sort of a social responsibility lens to many things I do. Um, so when I think about it, right, I think two areas uh, maybe I could comment on. The first one is the how does AI directly impact human life? Um, and then the second area is how do we minimize the bias that we potentially would uh, carry on from our human reality into algorithm and how do we avoid replicating some of those bias in algorithm? So I'll give you a couple examples maybe for each of these points. So I think when you think about how AI impact human life, naturally, uh, the very first thoughts many people would have is, well, you know, because it's automation and it's doing things at scale, it may rep uh, replace uh, more manual work. 
Uh, and that is certainly something we need to recognize and has happened in history, right? So our view of it, so for example, take our call center associate, for example, right? We recognize me as a customer myself, when I call for help, I absolutely want to talk to a human. And Home Depot absolutely recognize our associates are our most critical and important resource. So we want to make sure what we, whatever we do is making our associates' life much easier. Um, so instead of trying to think about do we replace, right? What we are focusing on is how do we make our associates' life easier? So the example I have is we actually, sometimes when customers call, you don't just call once because it may be a difficult problem. You have to call multiple times. So we have an algorithm that basically use natural language uh, processing or NLP technique. It reads the transcript from your previous conversation automatically summarize the gist of what your problem might be. Um, and then it shows the next agent you're talking to a summary of the previous conversation in a very succinct way. And the bot is smart enough. Let's say you're looking for a product or looking for an order status update. The bot is also smart enough to automatically go into other system to fetch those data. So instead of agents putting you on hold to say, let me read my notes, or say, can you wait until I find out your order status? All this information the bot automatically push to the agent, and then they will quickly basically be able to help our customers and make their life much easier through this example. So I personally absolutely love initiatives like this, because again, it's sort of a great way to help everybody work more efficiently and our customers much happier because they're not on the phone for five minutes. So um, that's one example for, for how we are thinking about how we best use AI to impact our daily life. Um, the, other example, uh, the other point I mentioned earlier is about bias, right? So um, I think it's almost inevitable that some bias would leak into algorithm. Uh, we've seen in the industry reporting there are companies who has AI doing hiring practice that reflected maybe a sexist practice rather than a fair practice. Uh, we have seen AI labeling uh, people incorrectly uh, because the training data is unfair. So becomes more like a racial profiling rather than a very fair label. So the question is, how do you prevent that? Um, Again, I personally, I'm responsible for machine teaching at Home Depot, so it's, this is a very big problem for me to consider, and I think about it a whole lot, of how to teach the machine correctly. So uh, the bias is minimized while you respect the accuracy, accuracy of your uh, algorithm output still. So we actually uh, spend a tremendous amount of effort doing machine teaching um, to assure the machine is not <laughs> predicting something that um, is reflecting that bias. So quick example, last year we validated over a thousand algorithm version and then we uh, used probably over a million data points to do labeling and validation to make sure our algorithm is prevented from the bias. Um, by far, I think machine teaching is probably only a very small, frankly, uh, measure to prevent that from happening. So ideally, uh, 
all of us as an industry should come up together and, and treat this problem more seriously. I would love to hear more from the community how they handle bias in AI. Yeah, that is such an important topic and you covered it so well. Thank you so much. Sure. So um, I think we're gonna switch gears a little bit and we're gonna talk about networking. So <laughs> what advice would you give female leaders and data scientists to enhance their networking skills and level up in their careers? Yeah, th this is again, a very near and dear topic to, to my personal experience. <laughs> I don't know if you could tell, but I'm actually a very introverted person. I would be very happy just to go hiking in the woods by myself or read a book. Um, so networking, frankly, does not come naturally to me at all. Not only that, it's sometimes difficult for me to make that effort because it's very much out of the comfort zone. Um, but throughout my career, I've got uh, I got a lot of good coaching from people who were successful. And instead of just teaching me how just like, hey, you have to network because this is a way up. Um, I think what's helpful is to uh, for them to help me to understand a few more things beyond just go networking. So the two things I think that resonate most with me and hopefully resonate with this community as well is I think it's critical to manage your personal brand and make that part of your very conscientious effort as, as your career progress. So one very simple tactic I would suggest is to identify a few trusted either mentor or friends, people you're, you're very comfortable with, right? Or people you think are critical for uh, you as a sponsor in your career. And very sincerely just ask for feedback. And the question I would just ask is keep it simple. Uh, I would just suggest what's your, like for example, Stephanie, what do you think in your mind, what is Jane's personal brand? So that actually opens up a lot of conversations. Some of them very comfortable because they might be positive and sometimes you're surprised because it's uncomfortable. It is not who you think yourself are. But to expose ourselves to how other people are seeing us is critical because other people's perception, even it may not be true in your mind, is the reality you live in. And that perception might be amplified uh, when you do, for example, the leaders might be doing career planning for you without you in the room, right? So in that case, the perception becomes very important. So how do, you, how do you manage that perception is a critical effort. And you need to start with understanding how they perceive you. So don't be shy. I know it's not comfortable. But once I start to do that, I think it's actually super helpful to, to make me realize where I really am in that perception uh, realm. So that's sort of the first uh, suggestion I would make. The, the second one is, um, I think being technical experts, right? We are, most of us are very confident with our ability and with how we can help people. So one day we have a leader in our merchandising realm could give me a really great advice. She said, the worst thing any data science always come to ask me, and she's like, I don't know why they always do this, but it drives me crazy, and it's totally not helpful. 
they always ask me, how can I help you? And what can I do for you? So when I heard that, I was like, well, why, why is this bad, right? Because we're trying to be helpful. So I was really baffled. And so she explained to me, she's like, for one, merchandising is a very specialized domain with many years of experience behind merchants' knowledge. So you don't understand anything of our context. And then on the flip side, I don't understand anything about what data science can do. So when you put me on a spot where I have to say, how can you help me? I don't know how you can help me. You, you need to first understand my problem and then we work together, right? So I thought that was a great uh, lesson I learned from a networking point of view, because sometimes you, you are intending to be uh, do good, right? Uh, but nevertheless, the way you're doing it may not be the most effective way of doing good. So how do you position yourself not as a just technical genius and potentially be the smartest people in the room? It, it is not that important. You always appear to be the smartest people in the room. It is frequently more important if you appear to be the person who understand the context of the partner you're working or collaborating with. And then so for me, that's a great learning experience myself. And uh, that, ever since I started trying to do that, um, it, it helped me a lot. So hopefully that's helpful for, for this community as well. Yes, that is some amazing advice. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jen, with us. So um, what is a pro tip you would like to share with our audience? Um, sure. So I think all the data scientists, are probably particularly because you're in data science field, it is absolutely critical for you not to stop learning and keep on being curious. So we this field changes so much. Nothing I do 10 years ago is what I do today, right? It, it's so, and it's probably true for many of us. So staying curious and have a very effective way of continuous learning is very important. Um, so you need to develop your own curriculum and it's sort of a lifelong curriculum for yourself. Uh, for me, I think um, personally what works well is a lot of reading and just leave time for yourself. I know our life is so packed with work and deliverables and families and, you know, stress. But if I do have the quiet time, I think, again, reading one of my personal <laughs> lifelong love is just what both gets into a quiet space in my mind as well as just learn new things. So um, when you do choose to read, if you want to try that way, uh, I would also suggest a very uh, diverse uh, diet. This is like if you eat, right? Uh, don't just eat things you like, also eat things that's good for you. So I don't necessarily like, for example, um, uh, just a very shallow industry article about AI because they're frequently <laughs> incorrect. But I still go out and read, you know, industry report about how other companies are using AI and trying to glean some truth from it. But at the same time, I also read um, academic paper published, for example, from university. Uh, I try to follow the math equation, even though if I don't always follow, right? So, and then by this Reading very diversely, conference paper is a great uh, venue. Uh, there's lots of great blogs if you're unfamiliar, right? Even YouTube videos or conversations like this. 
Um, so just like we want our workspace to be diverse, you need to make sure your informational input needs to be very diverse as well. Uh, and be aware of the uh, today's hyper-personalized world, right? Because in the hyper-personalized world, you might be fed by media uh, or whatever medium you're engaging into a very uh, narrow uh, scope of material because it's personalized to your interests. But remember, like I said, don't just eat what you like. Um, you need to broaden that deliberately and expose to things you may be not comfortable or familiar with. So, but be curious and just keep learning. That is fantastic advice. Thank you. That was amazing. So final question, is there anything else you want to tell us? <laughs> so I, I started by mentioning how uh, you know, community like women who code is so important. And I want to just re-emphasize that um, we're entering the third year of um, the pandemic. Uh, my personal family is back in China. I wasn't able to go see them in three years, right? So I think a lot of us are in this state of semi-isolation. We enjoying a uh, very blessed with Home Depot, for example, has a flex work policy. So I enjoy working from home, not have to commute and battle with traffic. At the same time, I don't think any of us fully understood the long-term psychological impact that this would have on any of us yet, because we simply have not let enough time pass, right? So um, I think it's really, really important for people in this community to help each other. Just uh, what are the ways you could do for yourself and take care of yourself? And what are the things you could do for the community and take care of other people? Um, so, more than any other time, I think, in at least in my lifetime, this sense of community and what I can do together and survive this becomes more important in, in my mind. And so, yeah, I'm trying to just do that and give back to the community, but also take care of myself. And I hope you do the same. <laughs> it's not easy for any of us. So that's, yeah. but we'll win this together. Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Um close and, and community is is so it's so valuable so um jen thank you so much for uh joining us today you shared so many um insights and your knowledge um uh, was so valuable and i really enjoyed this having this conversation with you so thank you so much oh, it's a pleasure so mine and thank you for the great work you guys do in honor of women's history month we're going to feature talks from leading women in technology living around the world. Different regions will be highlighted in our technical talks and career navigation segment each week. This week, we will journey through North America. We hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. In the Women Who Code Talks Tech segment, we'll hear from Jen Scriber, a senior software engineer at Workday in Boulder, Colorado. She'll be talking about encryption for JavaScript developers in a talk entitled, The Art of Writing Secrets. My talk is titled, The Art of Writing Secrets, Encryption for JavaScript Developers. Uh, but really, 
my goal is to just demystify encryption for you all. Um, whether you work on the front end or the back end, whether you're working in encryption often or not really aware at all, um, I just want to share with you a little bit about encryption, give you some examples that you might have in your everyday life as an engineer and uh, share with you all why I love it. Uh, so I'm Jen, I am hosting this meetup tonight, but also by day, I'm a software engineer at Workday. I work all on the back end, primarily in Go, Kotlin and AWS. And when I can, a little bit of JavaScript and React here and there. So tonight uh, we'll be talking about encryption. I will start with a little history lesson, encryption through the ages. I'll share with you what is encryption, different types of encryption. We'll talk about uh, JSON web tokens, JWS and JWE. Okay, so encryption is an ancient art. The first documented uses of encryption date back to around 1900 BC uh, when an Egyptian scribe used non-standard hieroglyphics in an inscription. Some experts even argue that encryption appeared kind of spontaneously, like after writing was invented, with applications ranging anywhere from diplomatic missions to wartime battle plans. Anytime someone wanted to um, like kind of send a private message from one person to another, uh, encryption could be used. So we fast forward to 100 BC. Julius Caesar was known to use a form of encryption to convey secret messages to his army generals in the war front. This substitution cipher that he used is known as the Caesar cipher. You can see that on the top left of the slide. And the Caesar cipher is probably the most mentioned historic cipher in academic literature. Fast forward even more uh, to about 1900 years later, Thomas Jefferson invented the cipher wheel in, 17, in the 1790s. And the cipher wheel, you can see that in the bottom left has about a thousand letters that had to be aligned just right for a message to be decoded. And lastly, on the right, this is an Enigma machine. These were cipher machines that were famous for their use by the Nazis in World War II. And the cipher machine, they had um, like an electromechanical rotor mechanism that scrambled all the letters of the alphabet. And it used a daily set of keys. So like kind of the scramble was different every day. And these messages were thought of to be really hard to be decoded. But you all might know of the story of when uh, the Enigma machines were proved breakable by mathematicians and most notably Alan Turing. So after the Enigma machine got broken in World War II, uh, Germany's, all of Germany's war movements came really predictable and it helped the allies um, kind of speed up their victory and win. So what is in encryption? Why don't you all take a moment, drop it in the chat, just take a guess if you have no idea what encryption is. I'm curious what, what you all think. Let's see, waiting for some chats to come through. 
Any guesses? Throw it out there. Okay, changing data so it's not easily accessible. A way to hide a message. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a hard word to say. Obfuscation of content. Yep. <laughs> Great. Uh, all of these things are correct. Keeping all the secrets super secret. Yes. Encryption accomplishes that very well. So encryption is just the process of encoding information. It's so that only the sender and the intended recipient of a message can view its contents. So encryption takes a message, which is what we call plain text. Um, we encrypt the message and out comes ciphertext, which is basically like unreadable string of characters. There are three main types of encryption, hash functions, symmetric encryption, and asymmetric encryption. And we'll go through each of these types of encryptions one by one with lots of examples uh, so you can really understand them. So let's start with hash functions. I'm guessing hash functions are probably what everybody is most familiar with. Uh, a hash function, you take an input and message, you perform some mathematical operation on it and out comes a hash value. With hash functions, you're transforming an input of an arbitrary size to a result of a fixed size. So if you can see on this slide, I have some, uh, I'm running some hash functions, specifically SHA-256 within my terminal. And first I hash hello women who code, then I hash my name is Jen. And then I also hash, um, I love hashing functions, don't you? And you can see that the output of hashing all of these strings are, are a fixed size. Uh, so I think that's pretty interesting. It helps uh, predict data size when you're, when you're storing these types of uh, hash values. Hash functions are one-way functions. So when you go from an input message to a hash value, um, you can only go one way. So you cannot go, let me show you from the previous slide. You cannot go from a hash value back to an input message. They're only one way. Hash functions are used as kind of fingerprints. Uh, by hashing something, we can kind of see if it maintained its message integrity. So say we have, we hash an input and later we hash a different, we hash the same input, we can compare the hash values, see if they change, and then that will tell us if the input message itself changed. Um, examples of hash functions include SHA-256, uh, MD5, bcrypt is a hash function. You might be familiar of bcrypt password hashing. Um, bcrypt's based on the Blowfish cipher. So some ex examples of password hashing, so the first one is an example of bcrypt. Um, that string just shows you how a bcrypt password is built, the different components of it. Um, and another, another example of hashing in your everyday life would be git commit hashes. So anytime that you are committing code with git, um, git creates a commit hash for you. This is uh, what I circled in red. This is considered the commit ID. And to build this hash, uh, 
the way I understand it, Git basically uh, hashes your working directory and hashes metadata about you, like your um, username and the date of your commit. They use a SHA-1 hashing function, and through that, you can get the commit ID. So uh, hashes are everywhere, whether you recognize them at the time or not. Um, they really help us do our everyday work. So besides hash functions, um, other types of encryption include asymmetric and symmetric encryption. These are both keyed encryption, and this is where it really gets fun. So you might be thinking you have no idea what a key is. Well, a key is just a string of characters used to lock or unlock a message. So this slide shows you what a key will look like. Um, I have the pink arrow pointing to a public key, and you can see that this is just a string of characters. This public key belongs to Google uh, associated with their SSL certificate. So I think you should be able to see this. Um, I got this right off of the internet. So you can click that lock button within your URL and you can see the um, SSL certificate that docs.google.com is secured with. And then I just open up some details and scroll down and you can see I got the, the public key right here um, on their website. So yeah, public uh, key is just a string of characters. So the two types of keyed encryption that we're going to talk about are symmetric encryption and asymmetric encryption. Symmetric encryption is when you encrypt and decrypt using the same key. And asymmetric encryption is when you encrypt and decrypt using different keys. Don't worry if that flew right over your head. Uh, I'm gonna go through some examples and I think you should really get it. So let's start with symmetric encryption. Uh, symmetric encryption is called private key cryptography. Uh, this is because symmetric encryption uses one key, a private key, for both encryption and decryption. Symmetric encryption is often used for things like data storage or banking, and some algorithms that you might have heard of are AES and DES, symmetric encryption algorithms. Okay, so let's help you all understand what symmetric encryption is. Um, I'm going to use the example of one of my favorite Netflix shows, Great British Bake Off. Any fans here, maybe? I see some nods. Yes, Mandy. Absolutely. Yes, okay. So we have the cast of Great British Bake Off. We've got Matt, Noel, Paul Hollywood, bottom left, he's a really tan one, and then Prue. So, I'm not sure if you have all watched the latest seasons, don't worry, I won't spoil anything, but um, let's say it's pastry week and um, we have the whole competition of the uh, contestants making their pastry. The judges have to vote who's gonna be the star baker. So they're going to use symmetric encryption to do this. Okay, so Paul, wants to send, oh yeah, Mary's not here. This is later seasons. So Paul wants to send an encrypted message to Prue. And he wants to send this message via an insecure channel. Paul doesn't want 
um, any of the contestants or Noel or Matt to be able to view this message. He wants the message only to be viewed by Prue. So Paul and Prue have a judge's private key. This is just one private key that they both have um, a copy of. So what Paul does is he takes his message that he thinks Jurgen should be Starbaker and he uses his private key to encrypt the message. Out comes uh, this gibberish of unreadable text uh, from that encryption. So Paul then sends the encrypted message to Prue. Prue uses her copy of the judge's private key, same key that Paul used, to decrypt the message. And then she now can read the message that says Jurgen should be Starbaker. So the big thing is that there's one private key and both the sender and the recipient have the same copy of that key. And the key is used to encrypt and decrypt a message. So say Paul wants to send the text, it's pastry week to Prue, to Noel and to Matt. Paul would have a different private key that he would use with Prue, a different private key to use with Noel and a different private key to use with Matt. So although Paul is sending the same plain text to all of them, the ciphertext output would be different for each of the um, messages because a different private key is used. So you can see how, uh, let's say Paul sends its pastry week to Prue, um, Noel or Matt couldn't read it, even though it's the same plain text message because they don't have access to the private key that was used to encrypt the message. So hopefully that helped you kind of understand how one key is used for encryption and decryption and it's shared across the sender and the recipient. So next we'll move on to asymmetric encryption. This is called public key cryptography. Um, asymmetric encryption has different keys used for encryption and decryption. So in this case, we're using a private key and a public key. The public key is derived mathematically from the private key, but you cannot derive the private key from the public key. Asymmetric encryption is a lot slower than symmetric encryption, but it does have better security because we're not sharing private keys um, uh, to recipients. We are just sharing public key. So I'll, I'll go into that. Asymmetric encryption is used for digital signatures. It's used for blockchain transactions. It's used for PKIs. Um, and some algorithms for asymmetric encryption include RSA and ECC. ECC just stands for elliptic curve cryptography, uh, just a, another algorithm that's often used. So remember when I showed you this uh, public key that Google uses for their SSL certificate. This actually uses an elliptic curve algorithm. It uses a SECP256 algorithm. So you can see how um, kind of different keys, different algorithms will use be used in different scenarios. Okay, so let's go through the next example. We'll talk about my next favorite TV show and help you understand asymmetric encryption. Okay, do we have any Alias fans out there? This is a bigger stretch, I don't know. Mm, no, okay, well, I'll tell you the premise and you'll be sure to get uh, get all the references. Okay, so Alias is really just like a, a spy show. Um, 
Jennifer Gartner is a star and uh, it's available on Amazon Prime if you uh, like some good bad TV. So let's introduce you to the characters that we'll be talking about. Jennifer Gartner or Sydney Bristow and her dad, Jack Bristow. They are both um, super spies for an organization called SD6. And then we have Sark, who is their enemy. Um, and he's considered the attacker in this scenario. But Sydney and Jack want to be able to send encrypted messages to each other using asymmetric encryption. Uh, usually in crypto cryptography examples, you will hear uh, the sender and the recipient known as Alice and Bob. So we like to use Alice and Bob in examples for some reason. Um, and the attacker or the eavesdropper is known as Eve. So Alice, Bob, Eve. But I'll keep calling them Sydney, Jack, and Sark. So um, Sydney wants to send a message to Jack. Jack has two keys, which are called his key pair. He has a public key and a private key. Jack's private key is totally private. Only Jack knows his key. He keeps it secure. He doesn't share it with anybody. But Jack's public key is shared to anybody uh, who he wants to send encrypted messages. So he could share this publicly on the internet or something like that. Um, these are all characters from Alias who would also have access to his public key. So when Sydney wants to send a message to Jack, she takes her message. Um, she uses Jack's public key to encrypt the message. Then Sydney sends the encrypted message to Jack and Jack uses his private key to decrypt the message. So the thing to note here is that um, although anybody could grab the encrypted message, you have to have Jack's private key to decrypt it. You have to have the private key that corresponds to the public key that was used to originally encrypt the message. So they, they go together, um, the public key to encrypt, the private key to decrypt. And if Jack is able to keep his key private, you know, his messages are safe and only he can decrypt them. So let's um, come full circle and give you an example of this in JavaScript. So let's talk about JSON web tokens or JOTS. Has, have you all heard of JOTS before? Use them at all? I see some nods, some yes, some no, okay. So uh, JOTS are just compact and self-contained way to securely transmit claims between parties. So it's just a way to send information from um, one party to another. JOTS are often used uh, in technology for authentication, for authorization, for information exchange. Um, and they're in a JSON format, so key value pairs. Uh, JOTS are made up of three parts, a header, a payload, and a signature. Uh, JOTS don't have to be signed. They can be unsecured JOTS that don't include a signature. Um, you would add a signature for more security. But when they are signed, so you can see in red, we have the header, in um, purple, we have the payload, and then in blue, we have the signature. 
Um, when we do include a signature, this is then called a JWS, a JSON web signature. I didn't mention this earlier, but um, if it's first time seeing a jot and you're like, what the heck are these letters? Um, it's just the claims on the right that are base64 encoded. Uh, that way we can um, send them in a kind of e more easily transmittable way to a recipient. So once we include a signature with our JOT, our JOT is now a JWS, a JSON web signature. JSON web signatures are contents secured with digital signatures using JSON-based data structures. Um, JWSs provide integrity protection. So when a JOT is signed, um, the recipient can verify that the JOT is coming from a certain party and that it has not been changed uh, since it was sent for that party. So you'll get it once I keep going. But uh, JWS are made up of three parts, a header, which includes a protected header and sometimes an unprotected header. It includes a payload and a signature. So if we go back to our example of Sydney and Jack, uh, Sydney might want to send the claims that um, Sydney is an issuer, her audience is Jack, maybe she has a secret spy message mission in Helsinki, and her date of arrival. So she would want to send these claims to Jack. Um, and she wants to uh, make sure that Jack knows, that knows that the claims are coming from her and that um, and they haven't changed since she sent them. So to do that, I'm going to walk you through some JavaScript code of how you would generate a JWS. Okay, so don't get overwhelmed with this slide. I'm gonna break it down bit by bit, but for the code, I'm going to be using the NPM package called Jose and let's go through it. So in order to generate a JWS, I first start by generating a key pair. Um, this is going to be a key pair includes a public key and a private key. Remember, a key is just a string of characters. So luckily, the library has an easy function for us called generate key pair uh, that will generate the keys for us. In this case, I'm using an ES256 key pair. Um, this is just an elliptic curve signature algorithm that's used with SHA-256 hash algorithm. You don't really need to know these details. Um, if you were to read through the JWS specification on the internet, it would tell you you should use these types of key algorithms and not these. It'll be very prescriptive of kind of what the protocol is. Okay, generate a key pair. Next up, um, we need to sign our JOT. We just pass in the payload, which is uh, the part in the pink, we set a protected header, we set the expiration date, and then we just run this sign function. We pass in our private key and out comes the JWS. You can notice that the output of JWS is signed, but it's not encrypted. So on the left, I have just the string of the JOT and I actually use my terminal to just base 64 decode the header and the payload. You can see that I can read this, it's plain text. If I'm sending this over the internet, like anybody can read this. Um, so it is not like private information that's sent, but it is 
sent with a signature, uh, meaning that we can verify who sent the message. So in this case, um, Sydney sends the claims to Jack. She signs it with her private key, and then Jack can take Sydney's public key, which is widely available, and he can use that to verify that the message actually came from Sydney, and it is the message that she wanted him to get. So to verify the JAT, um, this library just has a function called compact verify where we pass in the string of the JWS. We pass in the public key of the sender and um, verification is really easy. We'll just get the output of the claims and the protected header and we can see that everything was verified as expected. So once we have a JSON web signature, Sydney might want to send a payload that's encrypted. She might not want anybody on the internet to be able to see that she's going to Helsinki the when she's arriving because this is super, super secret spy information. So what Sydney will do is she will encrypt this JAT with Jack's public key, and then Jack will decrypt the JAT with his private key. In this case, we're using JSON Web Encryption or JWE. This is when um, content is encrypted and we're using JSON-based data structures, just like a JAT. JWE have a few more components. Um, they're made up of a header, including a protected and maybe an unprotected header, an encrypted key, an initialization vector, ciphertext, and authentication tag. Let's go through some code real quick and show you what a JWE looks like. All right, I'm using the same library again. This is the Jose library through the JWE flow. First step, generate a key pair. Um, in this case, I'm just using a different algorithm. This is a elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman ephemeral key that I'm using. Again, details don't really matter. Don't let them bog you down. So once I generate the key pair, the private and the public key, I need to sign and encrypt the JOT. So I just pass in the payload again. I'm passing in the algorithm that I'm using to sign and um, the encryption algorithm I'm using to encrypt. And then I call this encrypt function and I pass it in my public key and out comes the uh, JWE. Let's check it out real quick. Um, this on the left shows you the string of the JWE. We have the protected header, which I can base 64 decode. Then you can see I try to decode the ciphertext and it's like just gibberish. So this is where all my claims are happening in the ciphertext, but I can't read it unless I have the private key. So um, you can see that in this case, my data is encrypted and signed. Last step in the flow would be to verify and decrypt the JWE. Again, there's just a function. This library is really handy. I should just uh, decrypt the JAT. I pass it in my private key, and there you go, the outputted decrypted message. So I know that was a lot pretty quick about JSON web stars, JATs, JWE, JWS, but it should give you kind of like high level view of all of these things that are happening. Often on the front end, JATs are used for authentication and authorization. Um, so again, 
JATs are the high-level JSON web tokens. They can be signed, creating a JSON web signature. They can be signed and encrypted um, as a JSON web encryption. Um, and all together, we have this big JAT happy family. So um, that is encryption for JavaScript developers in a nutshell. Uh, hopefully, you all learned that encryption is not as scary as it sounds. It's just the process of encoding information so that only the sender and the recipient can read the message. We talked about hash functions, which help maintain message integrity. We talked about symmetric encryption or secret key cryptography. That was when we only had one key. We talked about asymmetric encryption when we had the private and the public key, two keys. And then we talked about JOTS, JWS, JWE, all the JWs. Um, and lastly, we went through some examples of generating and validating JATs in JavaScript using a handy um, Jose NPM library. Lastly, you might not have bargained to learn some of my favorite TV shows right now, like Great British Bake Off and Alias. So thank you all for hearing me share about encryption. Um, I'd love to stay in touch. So you can find me on our Women Who Code Slack. You can email me or um, find me on LinkedIn. In the Women Who Code Career Nav segment of our show, you'll hear real world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. In this week's Women Who Code Career Nav segment, we'll be listening to a talk entitled Storytelling to Get Yes or How to Engage Your Stakeholders, given by Ashta Thakkar, Senior Analyst at Just Answer, Navni Gill, CEO of Navix, and Sylvija Schemite, Product Manager at ADP. Hi everyone, my name is Sylvia Skimaiti and uh, today I'll be talking about uh, storytelling and stakeholder engagement. And we'll see how this can lead to a lot of people uh, saying yes to your project. Today's topic is uh, near and dear to my heart um, as I've picked up bits and pieces of my experiences from startup accelerators and uh, pitching my startup to investors as well as um, the day-to-day -day interactions with stakeholders as a product manager. And of course, lots of trial and error, uh, making sure and, and trying out different things uh, of how I can best engage people that I work with. First, uh, a little bit about me. I'm a product manager uh, working on modernization initiative, uh, innovation initiatives at ADP in New Jersey. Uh, I bring my startup experience as I've pitched to investors for funding before and presented at competitions. I have a bachelor's degree in engineering and computer science, and I'm a strong advocate for women in STEM. I love mentoring and always look for opportunities uh, to mentor the upcoming generation of leaders. Um, in my free time, I love to read books, uh, especially about innovation. I love traveling and uh, exploring new uh, food, surfing, or hiking scenes. So let's jump into the topic. Uh, so do, today uh, I'll be talking about storytelling and getting people bought into your ideas. 
We'll achieve this through a three-step technique uh, that you can apply in any conversation, whether it is a project readout or a pitch or a new idea, and whether you're talking to your manager, your peers, or, or any colleague. I'll share how you can start applying it uh, today, and I'll also tie it into specific examples about ways uh, to collaborate with product managers if you're a software engineer, and if you want to build great relationships with them. As a bonus, I'll be sharing a technique called uh, Nemawashi that helps me align with stakeholders even better uh, when I have the meeting before the meeting. So stay tuned for that. And I'll be happy to take any questions at the end of uh, my lightning talk. So it is my hope that you will walk away uh, with at least one uh, piece of advice that you can apply in your uh, next conversation with a stakeholder and make it a huge success and get even more yeses. So first of all, uh, why stakeholder engagement is important. So let's start with who are the so-called stakeholders? Those are the people who you work with day to day. It may be a developer, a project or a product manager. It could be a colleague from another team or business unit, or even your own manager. So why is it so important to be effective at engaging the people you work with? Well, we engage with, uh, with them in every single conversation, every single day. So it affects every single area of our work. So effective stakeholder management will help you build better relationships. It will help you um, get things across the finish line in a better way and, and faster, and it will propel you in your career. So now that we know how important it is, I want to give you a few great tools that will make you very effective in engaging the people that you work with. Starting with our three-step technique uh, that I call the three E's of stakeholder engagement. It includes engage, uh, excite, and enroll. Engage is all about sharing your story with the listener and uh, showing your perspective of the idea. The second step is excite. And it's about showing how your idea is relevant to your listener and how it will help them be successful. The last step is enroll. That's where you want to get your listeners input on your project and make them feel part of it. Let's jump into them a little bit deeper. So all of us are driven by different goals and interests, but all of us have one thing in common. We're more likely to help someone if we know why they're doing it. So the first E is engage. So how can we engage people? Well, let's share your story. Start from the beginning. Walk us th through your thought process. So let's say you're trying um, to pitch an idea or you're talking with your development team and you want to propose uh, implementing an infrastructure improvement to your product. You're convinced that this project will be a huge success, but before you jump in into any details, share your thought process with your team. Let them know how you came up with it and why. Help your team see the importance of what you're proposing to build. The second E is excite. It's all about exciting your listener about your idea. So, how can we excite them? We want to understand uh, what the listener is driven by. What are their career ambitions? What goals are they trying to achieve in their team? 
show them a way that they can achieve their goals by helping you and collaborating with you on your idea. This means that you want to get to know your listener better, both as a person as a, and as a colleague. Let's say you're talking to an engineering or product manager from a different business unit, and you want to propose uh, an opportunity uh, for collaboration to build a joint feature that will improve customer satisfaction. Before we bring anything up, uh, we want to understand what their team is currently focusing on. Is it delighting their customers? You want to understand what they care about and speak their language. How does your idea help them succeed? Last but not least, our third E is enroll. We want our listener to be bought into your idea. The key is to make your stakeholder, the person that you're talking to feel part of the vision. You want to show that you value your, their opinion, you want to collaborate uh, with them and you want them part of your journey. So for this example, let's say you're talking with your manager about a new process that will help uh, the team's efficiency. Ask your manager if they see any points for improvement. Show your genuine interest in the feedback that they have to offer and make this idea even better. By asking for their feedback, it will make the pitch a positive experience for the both of you that builds collaboration and shares ownership of the success. So to recap the three-step technique, what are the small things you can start doing today to become better at stakeholder engagement? So first, always share your thought process behind an idea and try to understand what's on your stakeholder's plate. Listen to understand their perspective before sharing your idea. And if you can, do your research to better get a better sense of what their priorities are. Lastly, ask for input. And all of these steps uh, combined will set you up for success for any conversation. Now let's look into a specific example. How can you be your team's MVP? Here's an example of how a software engineer can work with a product manager that in a way that engages and excites them and you're both committed to the success of a project. So first, try to understand what your product manager cares about the most. Let's say if your product is customer facing, your product um, manager really cares about the user impact and satisfaction. Try to tailor your story and your input to match what they care about. That way you'll have them engaged and follow your story. Second, share high level details. That you, especially those details that your product manager can easily relay to other stakeholders. So make the product manager's job even easier if, uh, if you share a link to a documentation that they can easily share with their partners for easy consumption. It's a win-win situation when uh, a product manager uh, can easily see the value you bring to the product, how it relates to their goals, and they can easily pass it along uh, to their stakeholders and partners across uh, and um, upwards. Lastly, you'll be an asset to your product manager if you back up uh, them in partner conversations. So let's say offer them to be a technical expert on a discussion that you're having about a new feature. This will not only help you build 
the relationship with your team's product manager, show your expertise, but also this will give you the exposure at the company and the visibility that will help you propel your career. The last piece of advice I want to leave you with today is Nemawashi. And Nemawashi is where all of it happens. It's the meeting before the meeting. Having those multiple sideline discussions with the people involved in the project or the people who will need to approve your idea for it to go forward. Namawashi is all about checking in with everyone before the meeting. Using Namawashi, um, you will walk into the meeting, the official meeting, already having support for your idea from others. I always make sure to first understand um, who needs to approve the project and in what order so that I can have those um, individual discussions with those people before the official meeting actually happens. And this helps me identify the right people to approach uh, before the meeting and get their input. So I want to socialize my idea. Uh, I want to receive feedback uh, and take action on it prior to the meeting. This helps me address any concerns and uh, share varying levels of detail about my idea with the different parties involved. And once you are actually at the official meeting, you'll have the right people on board that they will help you champion your idea and support you in making it a success. So that's all for today. And thank you so much for your time. I'd love to connect with you all and continue this discussion. Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me a message via email. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.